Well, it's been a good day today, hasn't it, church? Praise the Lord for what he's doing in our lives and the life of our church. Certainly blessed by Patrick Henry Corral. Thank you all so very much for ministering to us on behalf of our Lord. What a great blessing it is to be encouraged by those truths, what you sang of. I invite you this morning to turn to Luke chapter 9 as we continue our study through Luke's gospel. Uh, You'll find our text on page 867 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And we are going to begin in verse 23. I do invite you, as is uh, our custom, to have your Bible open, even though the verses are on the screen over my shoulders. As you see, we'll continually refer back to the text. I think it'll be helpful for you to stay engaged and be reminded throughout this message that what we're considering is the truth of our God. And so, Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. Hear now the word of God. And he said to them all, If anyone come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Our Father, we're thankful for your scripture. We're thankful for the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask even now as we set our hearts upon them that he would minister to us through his spirit who resides within us. That, Father, we may know Christ well through this passage and that we may understand the life in which he has called us to live. And I understand even as reading them once again, Father, that the words which we consider this morning are in some ways sober, in some ways even severe, and yet they are your will for our lives. I think they in many ways run contrary to the life in which we live, even the, the religion in which we have, have molded perhaps to fit our own desires. And so I pray that you would help us today. We need fresh eyes to see these truths. We need, I believe, to be challenged. We need to repent. So will you help us? So we consider the charge of our Lord. And at the same time, the great promise that he holds out to us even now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was on the year 1000 A.D., 180 years after the death of Charlemagne, that the great king's tomb was opened. Surrounded by incredible and vast treasures sat the skeletal remains of King Charlemagne upon his throne. His crown still upon his skull, and a copy of the Gospels sitting open into his lap, with his finger resting on a verse. That verse that he chose, the the greatest king of his day, chose to be buried with. What good is it for man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul? I think that not only is a good word for Charlemagne, some 1,200 years ago, but it is a good word for you and I today. What good is it if we gain everything that we set our hearts upon and yet lose ourselves? 
I think it's a good word for us because we, in the, in particularly in, in Western Christianity, have in some ways domesticated Jesus. We have some ways um, thought that Jesus just blesses our pursuit of whatever we set our hearts upon. I think David Platt put it well in 2010 when interviewed by CNN as he said, We American Christians have a way of taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus that we are more comfortable with. A nice, middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism. A Jesus who brings comfort and prosperity to us as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. I think Platt is right. I think he's spot on. I think so often we create a Messiah who is totally happy with the life in which we live, a, a king who makes no demands upon our life. I think perhaps a, a good question for you to search in your own heart as we consider this passage today is what are you doing? What has Jesus demanded of you that you are doing that you'd rather not do, but you're doing out of obedience to your king? How has he commanded you? Our passage, I think, will help us consider that question as we apply it to our lives. If you remember in our study of Luke's gospel, uh, we, a couple weeks ago, we saw that, that Jesus asked the apostles, who do, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, speaking for all of them, said, you are the Christ of God. Of course, that's the right answer. And yet the Christ in which Jesus is was not the Christ in which they expected. For he went on in verse 22 and told them once his identity has been affirmed, he told them the work in which he will set himself about, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, rise again. This is what he calls for us. To do. See, the question is, if you're the Christ, and if, if you're going to walk this road of suffering, and if you're headed to the cross, what about those who follow you? Right? What, what do we get if we want to be your disciples? Do we, are, are we in line for ease and health and, and abundance and uh, comfort and early retirement and picket fences and two and a half kids and a dog in the front yard? Is that what we are supposed to have if we are to follow a crucified Messiah? I mean, this is the, he even asked that question, doesn't he, in verse 23? And he says, if anyone will come after me, he says, you want to come after me? You want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? Then understand, as it goes with me, so it goes with you. I am going to walk a road of suffering. And if you would follow after me, you too will, you must walk a road of hardship, a road of self-denial, a road of cross-bearing. By the way, this passage is not for the super-Christians. Some people want to twist this passage and say, well, those who are really serious about Jesus, well, they're the guys who carry their cross daily. They're the ones who deny themselves. He says, if anyone would come after me, there is only one way to follow Christ. There is only one way to be his disciple, and this is it. This is what he calls us to do. He is saying to us today, if you would have anything to do with me, you must follow me as I define it. Will you follow me? Now, I, I, even as we consider this passage, you, we understand this, this is a hard, it's a hard passage to work through. It's a hard passage to search in my own heart. This has hit me hard. And in many ways, God has shown me my own disobedience as I consider this truth and has been working in me as His Spirit helps me to understand this passage. And I hope and pray that He, he works on you too. And some of you, I hope He works hard on you. 
Because you need to follow Him in the way in which He has laid out for us. And yet there's great reward here. And I, I look delight to uh, consider it. I, I do think it's interesting that the, this is the Sunday in which the Patrick Henry Chorale is here. And I, I don't know if you students remember, about a month ago I was preaching in your chapel. And the passage assigned to me was out of Matthew. And it was the parallel passage to which we are considering today. And so in many ways you are hearing the same passage a second time. I don't know what that says about you all, um, but I trust God is sovereign in it. And so God wants you to listen to it once again. So here we are as we consider how it is we follow Jesus. First of all, you'll notice that Jesus tells us to deny yourself totally. Verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Now, note Christ is not saying that you are to deny yourself something. And this is how many people want to um, create Christianity. They say, okay, I, we need to deny ourselves these things, the, the list of things. Here it is that we can't do. And we, over the centuries, have created the list. And, and the list changes. And it, it used to be you, you don't smoke and you don't dance. You don't movies or you don't do this. You don't vote uh, Democrat or whatever your list might be, right? And, and you have this, this list of things that you say, if you follow Christ, you can't do these things. And Jesus says, that's nonsense. I'm not, I'm not here to give you a list. I'm not here to say deny yourself these things. I'm here to tell you to deny yourself not something, but to deny yourself someone, namely you. Deny yourself yourself. That's what he's calling for us to do. And this confronts us because many times we're happy to embrace God's will for our life as long as it fits our will. Right? We will follow God's agenda as long as it fits our agenda. In fact, many people consider whether they ought to come to Christ. And they're debating, okay, well, uh, I've heard about Jesus and, and I need to know how, what he's going to tell me to do if I come to him. What am I going to have to change? What am I going to have to start doing? What am I going to have to stop doing if I were to come to Jesus? And I would say, quite frankly, that's a stupid question. It makes no sense if Jesus is actually who he is. Because if he is the Son of God, if he is who he says he is, the Son of God, the one who's made everything, the one who holds your very existence together by the word of his power, the one who will come in power, in the glory of his Father, in the glory of the angels, in judgment, if he is that, what does it matter what he says? Right? If he says, I want you to sell everything you have and move to Ghana, there is only one logical response. Okay. If, if he says, I want you to avoid this or do this or stop doing that, there's only one logical response to him if he is who he says he is. It makes no sense for him to say, well, I want you to, uh, let's say, I want you to be a missionary. And we say, well, you know, I like living in Loudoun County. I don't want to be a missionary. Even though you are the son of God, the only one who can save mankind from their sins and the eternal creator and the judge of all things, I'm not going to do it. it, it it's, not a, it's not a lack of faith. It's a lack of sense. It makes no sense. If he is who he says he is, he is God. He is the Christ of God. You don't get to evaluate his agenda for your life. You deny yourself your agenda and you embrace his agenda, whatever it might be. The question for you, friends, as you live your life is not what I want, but what does God want? What does God want me to do with my life? What does he want me to do with my money? What does he want me to do in relationships and romance and, and work and, and church? What does God want me to do? He has to be your Lord. He has to be Lord of everything. Jesus needs to be Lord of all your life. It's not okay to say, okay, Jesus, you can be Lord of part of my life or most of my life, but you can't have all of my life. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do this. You don't get 
get to demand me in those areas. He wants to make uh, demands in all of your life. He wants all of you. He's either Lord of all of you or he's, or he's not Lord at all. It'd be like if I went to my wife. There are 168 hours in a week. And I said, honey, I will be a devoted husband to you 166 hours a week. I just want to be single for two hours a week. Right? You think that would fly? Right? Yeah. Not with a legger. Trust me. Right? Right? It makes no sense. I can't say to God himself, okay, I'll do this, but not this over there. It's too hard. It doesn't matter if it's hard. He says for us, if you want to come to me, you must what? Deny yourself. So my friends, my, my question for you, friends, is how are you doing that? I mean, can you answer that question? I am denying myself, Pastor, in, in these ways because of what the Lord has said through his word, what he has led me to do through his spirit. Here's how I'm denying myself. I, I would encourage you, Christians, especially those of us who live in this very nice county and this very nice country in a very wealthy time, that you should beware of the dangers of pampering every whim you have. You should beware of satisfying every craving you might have. There should be places in your life you say, I'm not, even though I, I can, even though I'm, I may be allowed, even though I have the resources to, it, I'm not going to do it because I don't think it would honor God. He calls for us to deny ourselves totally. Secondly, he calls for us to sacrifice exceedingly. As if that were not enough, he goes on in verse 23 and says, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Now, this would have been scandalous to those who listen to uh, uh, Jesus. It's not scandalous to us anymore. The cross has been dulled by familiarity. The cross is, is to us a piece of jewelry or something we put in our church buildings. It's it was to them an instrument of execution and torture. We don't have any modern parallels with the cross. Some people suggest it would be equivalent of Jesus saying, take up your electric chair, maybe take up your noose, right? Would you wear a little gold noose around your neck? It just wouldn't make sense to them. But even the noose or the electric chair are just uh, quick ways of execution. The, the cross was an instrument of torture. It was an instrument of humiliation. It was an instrument of great suffering on the way to execution. It was a torturous death. You didn't mention the cross in polite company. You didn't talk about it. It was, it was a borderline profanity even to, to mention it. And Jesus says that you need to carry it. You need to carry your cross and to do so daily. What Jesus means is that following Christ will involve suffering for his sake. It will involve hardship. And, and when we say the hardship in which we endure, that's not the normal aches and pains of life. right? Your arthritis or your cancer is not the cross. Your mother-in-law is not your cross to bear. Right? Your, your rebellious child, your unforgiving spouse, your unfair professor, your messy neighbor... Those are not your crosses in which you have to bear. And sometimes it, it is put in that way. In fact, uh, John Wesley was once visiting with a very wealthy man sitting in this man's parlor and his slave came in to put more coal upon the fire and did so poorly and a puff of smoke filled the parlor and the rich man turned to the preacher and said, Oh, Mr. Wesley, the crosses I must bear. That is not what Jesus means. He talks about hardship that we endure because we are Christians. And what that means is if you follow me, Jesus says, you're going to face humiliation. You're going to face rejection. You're going to face suffering. 
You might lose your money. You might lose opportunities. You might lose promotion opportunities. You might lose friends. You might receive cynical remarks from neighbors and classmates. You might face ethical dilemmas at work. And for some people in Jesus' day and around this world, as we consider last Sunday, it quite literally means a cross, like a literal cross. In fact, many of these, almost all the apostles were killed for their faith. Some of them were actually crucified. In fact, the next chapter, in chapter 10, Jesus is going to look at these men. He says, okay, I'm sending you out again, but this time I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And that's not what they want to hear. Sheep don't do well against wolves. And that's how they are to go. You wonder if they're starting to look at each other thinking, are, are we sure we want to sign up for this? Right? Deny ourselves? Carry a cross? What are you talking about? I thought you were the Messiah. I thought you were the King, the Promised One. You must endure hardship. And by the way, God's people have been enduring hardship not only in Jesus' day, but for thousands of years. As we consider the persecuted church last week, we understand that three-fourths of the world's population lives in places where Christianity is restricted and persecuted. We are the exception here in America. There is hardship, severe hardship, not like the hardship that you and I might face for Christ around this world. And Christ knows it. In fact, Christ calls for us to embrace it. And this, once again, runs contrary to our natural instincts and sometimes the way we talk about Jesus because we are often totally focused on our own self-preservation and our own comfort and our own protection. And Jesus says, I want you to understand I'm giving you a cross. I'm giving you a cross to bear. He does not come to us and say, listen, I really want you to have your best life now. He does not come to us and and say, I'm just going to make your life easy. I'm going to make it comfortable. Right? Many people think about, okay, I'll come to Jesus and things will get easy, right? And, 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 and I'll, I'll, he'll take care of my health and take care of my problems and take care of my money. And, and then when things don't go well, when things don't go as we think, then we get angry at him and we say, aren't you supposed to fix my marriage? Aren't you supposed to take care of my finances? Aren't you supposed to help me with my health? And I wonder if Christ is up in heaven thinking, when did I ever say that? Well, where do you find that? Because I remember walking this earth and saying, if you're going to come after me, there's a cross that you need to bear every day. In fact, it's, I think, the devil who says that. He said to the Son of God in Luke chapter 4, was it not, if you are the Son of God, bow your knee to me and I will give you the whole world. It will all be yours. I'll give it You can have ease and prosperity and health. And Jesus instead says, if you follow me, you will become unwelcome. You will suffer hardship. You will be a laughingstock. You will be always in the minority. He evidently is not interested in introducing you and I to a comfortable life. He's interested in introducing us to a cause. A cause for him. And by the way, I I would tell you that this is not something that we're just supposed to do alone. I praise the Lord for our faith family, Hamilton Baptist Church, and the faith families that others belong to. We are supposed to bear these crosses together and help each other along this way as we follow Jesus. So the question I think that this text raises is, how are you bearing your cross? And this is where God has really worked in my own heart. Okay, Stephen, okay, Pastor, where's your cross? What hardship are you enduring for my sake? Those are hard questions for me to answer. And I I wonder about you as well. Can you answer that question? I I don't know where our country's going. It it seems to me, uh, as I've shared with you before, that 
that we're in a tipping point. There's a new moral revolution taking place. There's a, uh, a, an ethical transformation. And for the first time, perhaps in the history of this country, if you ask the average person on the street whether they're a Christian or not, you would come up to them and say, is it a good thing to be a Christian? For the, for the first 200 plus years of our country, the answer would have been unanimous. Of course, it's good to be a Christian. But it's no, that's no longer the case, is it? Some people will say yes. Some people will say no. I don't know where this... But the suffering that we endure is not like the suffering the rest of the world endures. The suffering that we endure is, is usually awkwardness, isn't it? I mean, that's about the extent of it, maybe. Some type of rejection, right? And, and even then, Christian, is this not true of you? Because it is of me. Even then, when the, when the suffering is so small, we're, we're tempted to retreat from it. Whereas our brothers and sisters throughout this world are, have, have big, heavy crosses pasted upon them. It seems like Jesus says, okay, American, I'm going to give you a little tiny cross. I'm going to put it right there on your shoulder, okay? Can you bear this for me? Can you bear a little emotional awkwardness for me? Can you bear a little relational embarrassment for me? And even then, are we not at times tempted to flee and think, it's just not worth it? And we think, I should stand up for Christ. I should say something, but it's just going to be awkward. And it's just not worth it. And Christ is calling us, listen, I have gone to Calvary's cross for you. If you want to come after me, my friends, my brothers and sisters, my disciples, you must carry a cross too. I tell you, a crucified Savior is not well followed by self-preserving disciples. We are to carry our cross daily, deny ourselves totally. And then you see, I think, great joy in our heart as we move perhaps from some of the sober truths to some of the more truths we can celebrate this morning as he says finally in verse 23 that we are to follow Jesus personally. And he said to them, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I like this because he does not say, I want you to follow this set of teachings. I doesn't say I want you to perform these rules or these rites or adhere to this system of religion. He says, I want you to follow me. In fact, you see both the beginning and the end of verse 23 are very personal. Jesus says, you want to come after me? He begins the sentence and he ends the sentence and invites us to follow him. And the reason is, is because Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. Jesus does not simply want your obedience to him. He does not simply want your cross-bearing and your self-denial He wants you. He wants to have a relationship with you. You were created not to follow a set of rules. You were created to know God. You were created to find your joy and your delight in God. That is why He has made you to have a relationship with God. And we see it in the book of Genesis when God is is dwelling in this beautiful relationship and fellowship with sinless man. And then sin comes and severs us. Wicked man from a holy God. And Jesus has come back to the earth and said, I want to take you back to Eden. I want to take you back to the place where you can have this relationship with God. This is why I have made you, so that you might know Him. In fact, on the evening of Jesus' crucifixion, in John chapter 17, there's this beautiful prayer. We call it the high priestly prayer. It's 26 verses of the heart of Jesus speaking to the Father. And He ends that prayer in verse 24, praying to God right before He goes to the cross. What what does the Lord pray for? before he goes to the cross. What's on his heart as he thinks about bearing the wrath of God? You know what he says? Father, I desire that those whom you have given me may be with me where I am. That's how he ends his prayer. I'm going to the cross, and this is what I'm asking. I want those who follow me to be with me. 
Is that not extraordinary? That the Son of God, the, the Savior of the world, is not saying, you go over there and do those hard things and I'll stay over here. He, he, is, he is not saying, okay, I need you to do this, but I'm going to stay up in heaven and watch from above. He is saying, I will be with you. I want to be with you. I'll be with you until the very end of the age. I'll never leave you nor forsake you, even in the midst, especially in the midst of the hardship and the self-denial in which you encounter. And you understand this, Christian, don't you? It is in those times of hardship and self-denial that the presence of Jesus is felt most, uh, most uh, powerfully. Right? It's at those times when we follow Jesus on this Calvary road that we know of his presence more intimately than we do otherwise. This is true in the life of countless Christians, including a hero of mine, John Patton, who 150 years ago was sailed to the island of Tana. I talk to you about Patton all the time. He's a great hero uh, of mine, and his life has done a great work in my own through God's grace. He went to the cannibals of Tana, and, and Spurgeon called him the king of the cannibals, that he would go and, and witness to them. And the previous missionaries on the island of Tana, just before Patton arrived, were uh, killed and consumed by those they were trying to win. And, and there's Patton on the island. He's been there for about a year. And finally, the, the natives have had enough of Patton. And so they begin their hunt. They hunt him down. He realizes they're coming and he runs up a tree as villages are looking to kill him and to eat him. And he writes later about that event in his journal saying, I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if they were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yell of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did the Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. And if it be to the glory of God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. And then he asks, If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? We do. Our Lord will draw near to us in the midst of our hardship. He wants us to follow Him. You see, Patton realized what many others have, have realized, that in following Jesus on the road of self-denial and hardship is the place of joy. Right? So when Jesus, I think this is very important for us, because we hear these hard commands of Jesus, and we think, okay, there's these hard things I have to do. I don't want to do them, but Jesus tells me to do them, so I have to do them. It's kind of like dieting, right? I don't want to diet. I hate dieting, but I have to do it, right? That's not what He's saying. He's not saying do these really hard things that you hate because I tell you to. He's saying do these really hard things because in doing them, you will, you will follow me. You will know me. You will experience me. In fact, you will experience joy beyond your understanding as you forsake yourself for me. And see, Christ, when he tells us to, that we need to walk away from these things, he's telling us to, to, that we want to experience life for what it's truly meant to be like. All you have to do is, uh, quite often, I've experienced this. I don't know if you have, if you've ever been on a foreign mission trip, for instance. Uh, we, as you know, we went to Ghana a couple times last year. We're going a couple times this year. We have two trips planned. Um, and uh, as I was uh, ministering in Ghana, these people are living on $200, $300 a year. 
and you'll find people that do not have the things that you have. They don't have cars. They don't have homes like you and I have. They don't, they don't have all the resources, but you will find the most joyful people, far more joyful than you and I. And you will be challenged by those who have very little and yet are so earnest in pursuing after Jesus Christ. You will be moved by their spontaneous times of singing as they just get together and want to praise God. You see, joy is not found in these things of this world. Joy is found in seeking after Christ as Christ tells us to seek after Him. He is not, therefore, against pleasure. Christ is not against pleasure. He is against the pleasures that will block your view of Him. He's against the pleasures that will cause you to care less for him and less for other people. And so when he calls us to do these hard things, he's actually after our joy found in following him. He says, you are to follow me personally. And lastly, he explains that you can, in Christ, find life completely. You can find life completely. You know, verse 24, the Lord moves on and says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's an interesting verse um, in verse 24, in light of the word that Jesus uses for life. There, You see, he talks about life a number of times in this passage. He does not use the typical word for life, which is the Greek word bios, which means physical life. Nor does he use the other Greek word for life, zoe. He does not use those words. He actually uses the Greek word psyche, which is most often translated as soul. And so Jesus is in very much saying um, that if you, he's referring to our inner life, our identity, our sense of self. And Jesus is telling us, you need to change how you think about yourself. You need to change how you find your identity. You need to find your identity in me. You need to find your life in me. Find your soul in me. Which is interesting that Jesus wants us to find ourselves. You notice that. He doesn't say, I want you to lose yourself in order to lose yourself. No, he says, lose yourself for my sake in order that you might find yourself. Which is good because in the West, we are obsessed with finding ourselves. I just want to find myself. He's like, well, he just has to go do this, and he's got, he's got to find himself, and he's out there looking for himself. And I, to be honest, I'm not quite sure what that means, but I, I've, I thought about that. I, I think it probably means when you find yourself, you find out what you want the most, and then you do it, right? Is that finding yourself? Finding your inner desires, what is it truly that, that moves you, and then fulfill them? Well, if that's finding yourself, there's like a thousand problems with it, right? Because what, what happens if your desires conflict? Right? I, I really, I've, it, you know, what I really deeply want, I want a large family with a bunch of kids running around, and I want a backpack six months a year. Now, my wife tells me those desires conflict, right? Those don't go together, right? Or what if, what if your desires are bad? Or what if they change, right? What, 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 if, what if you get them, and you're not, not even able to hold, them, hold on to them, right? As we seek to, to find ourselves. You see, Jesus, Jesus wants us to find ourselves. But he says, if you want to find yourself, you have to lose yourself for my sake. Right? You'll never find yourself by trying to find yourself, in other words. You have to lose yourself for my sake, and then you find out who you truly are. And once again, this is contrary to the life in which we live, because we always, regardless of what culture you live in, finding yourself is a means of gaining something. So uh, in, in traditional cultures, you're not somebody, you don't have a sense of worth until you have a family. 
You don't have a, a wife or a husband and children. And once you have that, then you, then you have a sense of worth. Then you, then you have found yourself. Then you know who you are. And even, even in adolescence, is this not true? Like you, you become somebody when you're in a relationship. Is this not what our culture says? That's when you actually have a sense of worth, when, when there's somebody along your side. But in the most more individualistic Western cultures, finding ourselves as a matter of, of, of getting a job or having degrees or being accomplished or having wealth or having some type of status, right? We, we try to gain in order to have self-worth. So regardless, in other words, of what culture you live in, identity is usually gain-based. It's this idea that you, you get this or get that, and then you get yourself. You get a sense of yourself. And I wonder if this is what Jesus has in mind, for he continues teaching in verse 25, saying, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Right? He says, suppose there's a person that gained everything. He had it all. Power, prestige, prosperity. You gain the whole world. Even then, will you finally get that yourself? Will you have an identity? Will you have a self-worth? And Jesus says, no. Even then, you're just going to end up losing yourself. It's not how you are to be found. It is not how you are to live. Uh, There's an interesting historical figure named Somerset Maugham. I, I never heard of him until I was preparing for this message. He was a renowned, some of you may know him, renowned novelist and a playwright in the 1930s. I wasn't alive then. Right? So I, I don't know this guy, but he wrote this book, um, Human Bondage. He wrote the play, The Constant Wife. And he accumulated great, great wealth. And he had this incredible refined taste. And it was in 1965 when Somerset Maugham was 91 years old, incredibly rich. Even, and even though he hadn't written a single thing for, for decades, he still received like 300 fan letters a week. Well, he's spending some time with his nephew, Robert Maugham, and, and uh, the London Times wanted a, an expose on him, and so his nephew wrote it. And this is what he wrote. He, he said, I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and the pictures and the objects that Willie's success had enabled him to acquire. I remember that the villa itself and the wonderful garden I could see through the windows, a fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean. Willie had 11 servants, including his cook, Annette, who was the envy of all the other millionaires on the Riviera. He dined off silver plates, waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henry, his footman. But it no longer seemed to matter to him. His nephew continues, The following afternoon, I found Willie reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles and a Bible, which had a very large print. He looked horribly wizened, and his face was grim. I've been reading the Bible you gave me, he said, and I've come across the quotation, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I must tell you, my dear Robin, that that text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. His nephew continues writing, Then he considered his soul hanging in the balance, and the great writer said, Of course it's all a bunch of bunk was months later that he was dying. And his nephew described an empty, bitter old man who repeatedly cried out to no one in particular in terror, Go away. I'm not ready. I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead yet, I tell you. See, our Lord asks this question, I think is very important for us to consider, that if you get everything your heart wants, will you actually find what you're looking for? 
Instead of trying to gain this, instead of living for these things, he says to us that we need to build our life on him, that we find ourselves in him. And in doing so, we find a stable self, a self we cannot lose. C.S. Lewis once wrote, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are waiting for us in him. I think that's so incredibly important for us to understand because we have created this gospel of self-fulfillment. And we, we say, okay, I'll do this ministry as long as it's fulfilling to me. Or I'll, I'll serve my neighbors as long as, as it's a, a fulfilling to me. Or I'll do this as long as I have this spiritual gift. And that's how we evaluate the ministry before us and how we're to use our lives. As long as it's fulfilling to me, as long as I have that gift, as long as, as, as Christ is going to make it easy for me to do, as long as I'll enjoy that, we'll say, okay, then maybe I'll do it. And we only do that when it comes to ministry. We don't do that in life. I've never once told my wife, you know, honey, I don't have the spiritual gift for changing poopy diapers, right? I've changed poopy diapers for 11 consecutive years, and I've never told her, listen, it's not my calling, right? Because that would be a stupid thing to say. You shouldn't care if it's my calling, right? There's a diaper that needs to be changed, and it's my turn to do it. And somehow we, we understand that in our home, but when we get to ministry, we say, well, you know, it's just not, it's not my calling, it's not my gift in this. Or, or sometimes what we do is we say, hey, you should get involved in this ministry. You should go on this mission trip because it'll be such a blessing to you. Right? That's how we talk about ministry. You should be involved. You should teach, teach the middle school students. You will, you will be so richly blessed by them. And we go on and on. You should do this because it'll bless you. You do this because it'll bless you. How many times do we ever say to someone, listen, this needs to be done and it's uncomfortable and it's hard and you won't like it at all but it will honor King Jesus. And I think you should do it. When do we ever talk like that? How many times do we say, listen, I need you to do this, and I know you may not be gifted for it like you think you ought to, but it has to be done and it'll be profitable for the kingdom. So will you do it? We don't talk like that. Even though Christ has, has called us here to lose our life for his sake. No, we will say, where's my blessing? What, what do I gain? What, 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 where, how am I going to profit from this? And, and Christ, I think, confronts that way of life. In fact, one thing that we want to get is we want people to like us. We want to be popular. Or one thing we want to avoid is uh, uh, um, awkwardness and embarrassment. I think Jesus refers to that in verse 26 as he uh, warns us very sternly in verse uh, here. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels as we even considered to begin our service this morning that Christ is coming. The Son of Man, the, the apocalyptic figure in Daniel chapter 7, the one who has given dominion over all the earth for all eternity will come in His glory and in the glory of the Father and in the glory of all the angels and He will come to welcome some into the eternal kingdom and to judge others. Others will be condemned. Others will be fully saved. And He says, you want to know how you know which group you're going to be in? Well, one way that you can know is whether you're ashamed of me or not. Right? Those who are ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of them when I come. If you don't want to associate with me in this life, when I come again, I won't want to associate. I'm going to treat you how you treat me. And so the question I think he asks is, are you proud of him? Do you want to be with Jesus? Do you want to be seen with Jesus? Do you want to be identified with Jesus? Do people know at the very minimum that you're a Christian? 
Do people know at the very minimum that, that Christ is the most important reality to you, the most important person to you? He says, if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. But then he goes on and offers this great promise in verse 27. It's so great, I can't even understand it. I don't know, what, to be honest, what, what, he's, what he's arguing here. But he says, but I tell you truly, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. It's almost as if Jesus says, I know what I'm talking about is sober and it's hard, but understand that, that there are some of you that you won't die until you see the kingdom of God in a, in a more fuller way. And commentators have, have no agreement as to what the kingdom of God means here. Some say it's the resurrection of Jesus when he unveils himself as this kind of first act of revealing the kingdom. Others say it's the transfiguration, which is the very next event in this passage. Maybe it's the spirit descending upon them in Pentecost, as others suggested. I'm not sure what he means by you'll see the kingdom of God, but I think the, the base point that we should understand from verse 27 is that Jesus is explaining the suffering in this life, the hardship is temporary. You understand that? The kingdom of God is coming. Eternal joy is coming. And one day this dark world is going to be pushed back and it will be a world of abundant peace, a a new heaven and a new earth, a, a world of joy and fulfillment and activity and worship and love and longing. And Jesus says, as you follow me, you you can't lose sight of this. You can't lose sight that the kingdom of God is on its way as you walk this journey with me. You see, when we follow Jesus, it's a journey. You're on that journey, Christian. And when you follow him, there are going to be great and wonderful times of self-denial, great and powerful times of boldness. But I understand, and I think we should understand as we consider this text, as we end our time together, there'll be times in your life of failure, won't there? There'll be times when you don't speak up, when you are ashamed of Jesus. There'll be times, maybe times right now, when you are not denying yourself or setting your cross aside. What, what, what about those times? Well, I think it's very interesting who Jesus is speaking to here. It's just the 12 apostles. He draws them aside. And he's telling them, hey, you guys have to deny yourself and carry your cross and so forth. Well, did they do that all the time? In fact, you think about the, the time in which Jesus needed them most. They were ashamed of Jesus. Right? They were running away from Jesus as he was being dragged into Pilate's court. Or to think that they chose not to deny themselves. Instead, they chose to deny Jesus. Not, not once, but three times. Or the, you see the fact that they ran from their crosses, leaving Jesus to carry his cross alone. And I wonder if these words in verse 23 and so forth haunted them on that very dark and gloomy Saturday as they hid behind locked doors and they replayed the, the words of Christ. You must deny yourself. You must carry your cross. You must follow me. You must not be ashamed of me. I wonder if they must have pondered that as they saw their Lord being crucified and buried and dead. And there they are on that Saturday Of course, that Saturday turns into Sunday and Christ comes and meets with them because you need to understand before the cross can be our example, it has to first be our victory, right? The cross is not just our pattern. It is the place where Christ has gone to die for us when we fail him. On his cross, Jesus' cross, he paid the penalty for our sins when we refuse to carry our own crosses. And he comes to the apostles at this time and he comes and he says, okay, guys, Let's try this again. Okay, let's, let's start over. We're going to try it again. 
I need you to follow me. I need you to carry your cross. I need you to deny me. And in great grace and mercy and patience with them, he comes to them and says, okay, let's begin again. And I wonder if God would do that in your own life right now. Maybe there are some here that God is just saying to you, okay, you, you know you're not, you're not denying yourself in any way. You're, you're running from your cross. And I'm here through the Spirit and the preached Word of God to say, okay, let's try this again. Let's start over. My brothers and sisters, there's got to be some place in your life that the Spirit and His kindness to you would reveal to you at least one change that you could even pray to God silently in your own heart right now. Father, I need to begin to do this. I, I'm, I'm avoiding denying myself here. I'm avoiding my cross over there. I'm, I'm ashamed of you in this relationship. And I need to change. Would you not listen to His words? Would you not follow Him through this? And perhaps there are other people here this morning that, that God will work in your life in great kindness and draw you to himself for the first time. That you would see this Messiah who calls us to do very difficult things and yet has endured very difficult things for you. Even in the testimony of baptism, as you saw, that you would be uh, drawn to him and that you would even cry out in your heart right now, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ who has died on the cross for my sin, that you rose from the dead and I give my life to you. That you might experience his grace and mercy. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can be saved even now as you call out to him. Would you do that as we pray to close our time? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that he does not ask us to do anything that he himself was unwilling to do. And Father, we pray that you would help us to follow his example, that we would understand that Christ does not exist to bless our agenda, but has an agenda for our life and that we would follow it. Certainly there are things in our lives, Lord, that you would help us to repent of. We do that even now through your spirit, that you would convict us of sin and may turn from it, follow after Christ, that we might know him more intimately. Father, I... Assume there's one or two or ten here that has kept you at arm's length, has not bowed their knee to King Jesus in faith and repentance. Will you not work in their heart even now that they would see the folly of their sin, the folly of rejecting you. And they think that these things offer them pleasure, and it doesn't. It's just vanity. It gives them no good. Will they not despair of their sin and find mercy in the crucified and risen Savior? Even now, for their gain and your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.